0: In today's episode, we explore evidence of that fleeting time when the worker was king. We try to dodge concrete death, and we find out how to make a middle-aged decorator vomit. It's the 26th of September, 2014. I'm Nguentin Wolfe, this is Londonist Out Loud.
2: Hey baby, let me take you
1: down, so we'll play some strange sights in the sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a song's through from your front.
0: Well hello hello I have misgivings listener about today's episode sometimes you have to weigh up the signs that you see and the first sign I saw as I arrived in the area in which I now stand was a large one by the roadside saying avoid this area don't I know, don't know why I said that uh, we're now going to do uh, a topsy turvy maneuver we're going to attempt an overview of today's subject, and then we're going to go uh, what looks like about 30 stories up in the air, having done the overview from on the ground. This will all make sense with me today is Joe Watson from the National Trust. And well, it's not a very lovely place to be quite honest that we find ourselves today. I think normally, Joe, when people think the National Trust, we think a lot of rural stuff or stately homes. There tends to be a sense of uh, wealth. Uh, whether present wealth or past wealth about it and we're in amongst building works of plenty it's a reasonably run down certainly an area in need of a lot of tlc
1: yeah, I, I think that's probably a fair enough assessment. But I hope by the end of the programme to have challenged some of your perceptions of why we're here and, uh, and indeed of the beauty of this place. And there's a bit of an underlying beauty going on uh, that I think is, uh, is really rather important and particularly relevant to the National Trust.
0: Now, listeners who've been with the show for some time will, of course, remember your name and voice from the uh, well, almost the companion location in London. We were up in Hampstead looking at the house of Goldfinger the architect oh no, Goldfinger the architect uh, made famous I think in a way he probably wouldn't have approved of by Ian e. Fleming and it is he who brings us to this part of East London we're, we're in the Poplar All Saints Langdon Park area and we're looking up at tower blocks
1: that's right, we are. We're here um, standing really between Carradale, Glen Kerry and Balfron Towers um, all of which uh, are named after Scottish villages but, uh, but in fact were all designed by Erno Goldfinger and his office um, really between 1965 uh, and about 1978. So that's what brings us here. We've, we've skipped forward a few decades. Of course, uh Road was designed in the mid 30s and completed in 1939 so we're really now looking at architecture of the mid to late 60s uh, which is rather different
0: we've said plenty of times on this show that that period is most notable most notorious maybe for brutalist architecture of which a lot has fallen into disfavor I would say we think particularly of uh, some of the buildings down in Elephant and Castle. The Barbican is always a, a little bit of a controversial uh, architectural style. How does the architecture that we're going to look at today compare with uh, some of that stuff?
1: Yeah, it's definitely brutalist. Uh, there's, there's no question of that. Um, what we're looking at is rough, raw concrete and towering buildings which uh, some would probably describe as monstrosities. Uh, I would probably point out their sublime features, uh, but we can come onto to that a little bit more later. I mean, I think a word really to start off, though, on brutalism, uh, which is a much misunderstood word. People always think of brutalism as meaning that, you know, it's somehow to do with its, uh, its brutalising effect on the humans who lived in these buildings. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. It actually was a word that was uh, expounded um, and discussed at great length by the design historian Rainer Banham. And its derivation uh, is actually from beton Brut the French, which meant simply raw concrete
0: Ah right, that idea of rawness certainly makes sense, and they 're very unapologetic structures uh, generally speaking aren't they they uh, I, I think I 'm right in saying they don't really seek to mesh themselves in with their environment and instead they 're there to do a, a particular thing in a particular way, and they get on and do that
1: That's absolutely right, and you know I, I think I would always want to say that. It's important not to slip into what you could call the Prince Charles fallacy of assuming that all buildings in any given area have to look exactly the same. This is, um, this is heroic architecture, actually. This is architecture that is, uh, is standing up to be counted.
0: It's got a whiff of the Soviet about it, in my view.
1: Yes. All right. Fair, fair enough. Um, and in fact, we had a journalist uh, just the other day who accused it of being Stalinist architecture, as it should have been. Uh,
0: so well, yeah, you can certainly imagine the uh, hammer and sickle design emblazoned uh, 20 foot high on the side. We, we don't have that. But I must say, the, uh, some of the buildings that I've spied today have really got some incredible shapes to them that I've not seen. Elsewhere, And we were looking at one particular tower that seems to be a fishbowl-cum-cabin suspended. Uh, I've, I've no idea how high up in the air, uh, 20 stories maybe. And it, it looks really very unusual. It reminds me of the Beatles' Yellow Submarine video. <laughs>
1: Yes, yeah, fair point. Um, it, in fact, uh, I mean, that particular design is, is Glen Kerry House and it follows uh, on from Trellick Tower, which is, uh, is Goldfinger's most famous building, I, I think it's probably fair to say. Um, it's actually the Balfron Tower, which is the building we're going to go into in, in just a moment, uh, it's its uh, younger sister. Um, so the Balfron was really the prototype for Trellick um, and then for Carradale and for Glen Kerry, um, all of which followed.
0: So Goldfinger was, I presume, commissioned and given how much of a free hand in what he did in this area?
1: Well, a reasonably free hand. Uh, I mean, as with any council architecture, it, it came with, you know, budgetary restrictions and all the rest of it. But what Goldfinger was definitely setting out to do here was to create and design buildings for the masses uh, that brought a bit of the, the, the beauty of the design of, of his own home and of the best of architecture at that particular moment, you know, to the ordinary people. So
0: we're going to proceed up the Belfront Tower, as you say. Before we do, I, I think the only remaining item of business, perhaps, is to just map out exactly how much of the built environment here we owe to the vision of Goldfinger.
1: Yeah, Uh, so what we've got um, is one very large 27 story building, which is the Balfour Tower itself. Uh, Next to that, a series of interlinked smaller towers, lower rise towers, um, which are known as Carradale House. And then a smaller building again, uh, which is Glen Kerry. And then along Rowley, uh, sorry, Rowlett Street. Um, we've got a series of, of much lower-rise buildings, which Goldfinger originally intended uh, to be lived in by uh, people who'd retired. Um, so these are almshouses? That's right. They are they are modern-day, 1960s almshouses.
0: Well, let's move towards the Balfournt Tower. Because I was coming to this for the first time, of course first impressions can be very striking and uh, I won't have been taking in the fine detail but what you do notice is this spine of connecting uh, walkways so there's, there's one tower which I think is the stairwell, perhaps the lift shafts and then the bigger block next to it, as you say 27 stories high, and that's where all the flats are, and then in between those I guess every two or three floors it looks like, there are walkways across, and it strikes a very unusual sort of silhouette.
1: It certainly does, Uh, uh, and Trellick of course is again, a slightly taller building, 31 storeys, and that's really become the kind of iconic uh, silhouette of of a typical piece of Goldfinger architecture, but this was the prototype and what you've got here is the service uh, wing, the service tower that you just described, which includes the stairwell, um, and it includes uh, two lift shafts as well and also, I mean, the reason he was doing that was to try and separate the really noisy bits of the building, if you like it's also got things like the bin chutes in it Um, so it was trying to separate people away from all of that and then what that allowed you to do uh, in the main part of the building was to really open up the spaces so that what people get is a very light space and when you look at these buildings they are you know pretty much floor to ceiling glazed uh, in all cases on one side which gives you the most incredible uh, experience of, um, of the view across London in different directions. Yeah, that's
0: one thing that very often strikes me about larger developments, larger residential developments, is tiny little windows. And uh, I've been in one or two of those places, and you do feel confined.
1: You certainly do. We we seem to be going a bit backwards in terms of uh, architecture, and of course it's important to remember where we come from. Here we are in Poplar. This is an area that was really blitzed, uh, sort of very badly. So, and it's really then this post-war building, you know, creating a new. You get Festival of Britain architecture um, in the early 1950s, uh, and then then you get this moment of uh, of Goldfinger and uh, and this particular development, which is uh, is mid 60s, as I said earlier.
0: Uh, We are punching in the secret code and praying for admittance. You've got a confederate.
1: (laughs) I've got a confederate up in the flat. She's letting us in
0: we're going to be meeting the confederate in just a moment that period that you mentioned joe between the festival and the this uh, 60s brutalist shows, did that represent some sort of change in materials and what was available
1: it's uh, it did yes uh, i mean concrete had been used uh, earlier and in fact there are some uh, really amazing examples particularly in france um, of the use of concrete you know um, as, as early back as the 1920s um, but there is definitely something that, that happens around materials and I think there's also something that happens around um, around utopianism and this kind of real drive to create really bold architecture, which I think is, is really interesting. I mean, this is um, uh, something that we might go on to discuss more later, but thinking about... I suppose thinking about that idea of heroic architecture and the way in which big architecture always shows you where the power is. Now that power has lain variously with the church and it's lain then with uh, the aristocracy uh, and of course now it lies with big business and with banks and all the rest of it. There was a wonderful moment, a very important moment in the 1960s where big architecture was social housing.
0: Uh, that truly is fascinating. What and have happened to that? It seems uh, it could only have been fleeting.
1: Yeah, it was fairly fleeting. Um, and I, that was partly to do with changes in government. Uh, it's probably fair to say that Margaret Thatcher did not help. But there was a particular moment um, also where, where the establishment really did turn against this kind of architecture. Uh, Alice Coleman, uh, who was uh, a professor of the built environment, uh, really started to shore up evidence against high-rise building uh, and against this kind of architecture um, by doing quite big sociological studies. And there was, you know... It it is fair to say that there was an element of truth uh, to some of what she presented. But someone like Goldfinger would have argued that the reason for the decline was really around the fact that these buildings were not cared for as they could have been and should have been. Uh, They didn't have... Uh, things like a concierge, which is exactly what he had intended there to be and had expected that there would be when he designed the buildings. Um, so, you, you know, very early on in the history of these buildings, you get issues around, um, around crime uh, in the buildings and around anyone really being able to use the building because it was simply a publicly accessible space.
0: It sounds as though the, uh, the, the knees were knocked out from under the scheme.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and so it really only takes a decade or so for people to be decrying buildings like this, and you know, particularly thinking of Trellick Tower, um, which is perhaps most famous for this, and ends up being nicknamed the, the Tower of Terror because. Because of the kind of crime that was going on, oh, because, right. of uh, because of prostitution, uh, because of because of you know drug taking uh, in the in the public spaces and public areas of those buildings, and so they became places that people didn't want to live. And then, of course, you end up with a, a, a kind of classic catch twenty two that the people who are more articulate and perhaps would be the more responsible uh, you know inhabitants of those kind of buildings managed to argue their way out of living in those buildings uh, and certainly we know that for many of the residents of places like Balfron and Trellick it actually started to feel as though it was almost council policy I mean not quite, but almost council policy to be moving the problem people in because you, you got them in, you got them out of the way you know, somewhat out of sight and just kind of let them get on with it So
0: ghettoisation, straight and simple Absolutely. And it's remarkable, really, isn't it? Because, seriously, who wouldn't want a a view like the one we've just discovered as we've come out now on the 24th floor in a lift? I've got to say whose uh, button numbering system leaves a lot to be understood. Uh, (laughs) Not every floor and not any discernible pattern. But anyway, we're looking at now through one of these narrow slit windows uh, down onto, I think we're looking west, I can see the shard there Uh, that that doesn't really locate you in london though does it the fact that you can see the shard somewhere um we've got to our furthest left the buildings of canary wharf and uh, well every tall structure in london is visible to us from here but the thing that i guess is extremely apparent from up here is that the sort of housing we've been talking about absolutely dominates this part of town
1: Yeah, it does, absolutely. Um, And what what we've got uh, beneath us is classic, you know, Festival of Britain, 1950s architecture, um, the amazing Crisp Street Market um, with Francis Gibbard's um, beautiful clock tower that he created. I I mean, this whole area has a really interesting history. And what most people don't realise, you know, everyone knows about the the Festival of Britain that happened on the South Bank, but they didn't realise that actually this was the architecture panel's contribution. To the Festival of Britain was creating this whole area, uh, which they did, and they opened it in 1951 uh, you know, as part of the Festival of Britain. Of course, it didn't, unfortunately, get the, the level of visitors uh, that the South Bank Centre saw. But it was an important statement about social housing. Um, it was a very important statement for the East End as well. Um, and really, you know, beginning to put places like Poplar on the map again and say, you know, we, we have to sort this out. We have to clear away the we A have to sort. It the you know the, the bomb damage, but we have to clear away the Victorian slums as well. You know we forget that people were living 27 stories below us. They were living in very dark, unpleasant conditions, vermin infested. You know, really, really unpleasant. Um, and suddenly. This bold new vision, and here we are in the mid-1960s, and people who were not used to things like fitted bathrooms, they were not used necessarily to even having really good quality running water, were suddenly escorted into a building like this and literally elevated up into the light. They were given the most extraordinary views over London. Uh, They were given fitted kitchens, they were given fitted bathrooms, they were given heating, they were given all mod cons. This was a kind of really, really revolutionary moment. Uh, in history in terms of architecture.
0: The other period, again in the East End actually, that resonates in my mind with this is the aftermath of the Great Fire which was used as an excuse to rethink how things were done, what they were made of and um, introduce a little more order and refinement into uh, lives or at least that was the ideal
1: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, of course, Wren came up with these very grand plans uh, for central London, many of which were not adopted. Um, one of the interesting things about Goldfinger, although he didn't work on um, on the County of London plan directly, which and this is the plan that was created in 1941, uh, aware of the damage that was already being done, uh, the planners uh, at the London County Council were busy coming up with post-war plans already, you know, as early as 1941. What Goldfinger was asked to do, though, was to create a public version of that which is actually a beautiful Penguin book uh, published in 1943 um, which, which in very kind of uh, layman's terms described what it was that he was hoping to do what, uh, or not he, him personally but what, you know, what the architectural profession wanted to do, how they wanted um, to bring beauty but also good quality design uh, good quality living uh, to ordinary folk throughout London
0: that's remarkable. We know, of course, Albrecht Speer and his visions for uh, an architecture that was completely allied with Nazi ideals. And it sounds as though we were uh, firing a, a few shots back. The idea of being able to look forward and, and publicly so in 43 seems really very odd to the ear. We have to go and meet the person with the best name on the show for many an episode, Tilly Hemingway. Tilly's waiting for us in Goldfinger's flat here. She's buzzing us through. What is Tilly's role?
1: So uh, Tilly is a designer working with Hemingway Design, uh, perhaps her slightly more famous father, Wayne Hemingway, of uh, Lead or Dead and what have you. He has also been involved with this project, but Tilly has very much been the lead on this, and uh, what she's created for us, um, or rather recreated for us, uh, in Flat 130, which has its own uh, interesting history, I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment, but she's recreated an interior as though it were 1968. This is the moment when people had just moved in. So we've got bits of furniture from you know, the 40s and 50s and then new bits that they might have managed to get hold of are dating from, from the 1960s as well.
0: We pass down a corridor with a, a marvellous view further east through large windows and between Mark's from uh, people working on the building uh, the engineers that show uh, signs perhaps of concrete death which sounds pretty alarming given that we're uh, up on top of all that uh, dead concrete we'll maybe uh, return to that but we're in the flat now a mirror from the first half of the 20th century hangs on the wall Uh, still a bit of flooring to go down i think and here we are we're in 1968
1: That's absolutely right. Now, I I mentioned just a moment ago uh, that this flat has its own really important history. Um, What I was alluding to is the fact that this is the flat that Goldfinger and his wife moved into in 1968 for two months to test out the building. So Goldfinger was so committed uh, to this idea um, of creating really well-designed housing for ordinary people that he he felt, having created this extraordinary building, that he had to come and test it. He knew that he had other commissions on the way. He knew that he had Carradale House still to build. Uh, he knew that he had Glen Kerry. He knew that he had Trellick uh, Tower in North Kensington uh, as well. And so... He wanted to come and actually spend time here... Uh, really understanding what it was like to be a resident uh, trying to get to grips with all of the issues all of the different problems and of course he does go on and make design changes uh, in places later Trellick Tower perhaps most notably has three lifts rather than two uh, because of course the moment one lift is out of action or someone is moving in or out you know, moving lots of furniture which is all the time in a building <laughs> like this yeah, absolutely actually it becomes a real problem you're, you're just standing there waiting for one lift to take you up and down 27 floors
0: Well, as uh, somebody who's visited his place over in Hampstead, I can see straight away a Goldfinger signature move here, which is a clever little cupboard at the top of the stairs. They're very neatly dropped in, very discreet. But I wonder what else I might see here that would remind me of that other building.
1: Lots of nice little design features. You're absolutely right. No element of space is wasted. Other particular things uh, uh, as i mentioned earlier th- the glazing the the very fact that this this flat feels so light uh is is really extraordinary and also thinking uh we'll come into the bathroom and the and the kitchen a little bit later but beautiful signature moments like very beautifully designed taps um and uh and you know very nice uh fitted kitchen furniture and things like that uh, that absolutely uh, speak in in every way of goldfinger
0: well we're looking forward to that we have only uh, one thing between us and that which is a word from our sponsor
2: Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible to claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles try the Audible service on 30-day free
1: trial audiobooks can be saved as mp3s and played on your compatible phone tablet or desktop or burned to cd and they're yours to keep for your free audiobook go to
2: www.audible.co.uk/londonist and click through
1: You're
0: listening to Londonist Out Loud, I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and I am Up in the Sky with Tilly Hemingway. And Joe Watson is lurking in the background, but he has to lurk a little bit because uh, it's quite a compact place that we're in here, and uh, you need to be able to make good use of space, don't you? I noticed for a start, that everything is white, which is a pretty uh, sound move if you're trying to make things feel a little bigger, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, when we when we moved in, well, when we got access to the flat, it was it was certainly wasn't white, but <laughs> it, it wasn't it also wasn't in its um, original state from 1968. It'd definitely been um, slightly bastardised over the years. Um, Has some really, really bad 90s carpet down, and also some really bad 90s wallpaper. And unfortunately, um, previous tenants had painted over a few of a few original features, which is a shame. So we've done our best to kind of bring it back to how it might have looked in, in 1968. So we're in the the living room now, with views over over the River Thames, and you can see see I mean didn't realize how uh, close Greenwich was actually it's it's really really close you've got amazing amazing views over Greenwich um so yeah the uh, residents sort of had a really nice quite generous generously sized balcony with a nice little planter which we're planting up with traditional 60s a little bit uh, traditional 60s plants now quite kitsch peonies and nice pink pink flowers um so moving in what we're standing in now we're in the living room Um, and what I've tried to do is get as much British-designed and manufactured furniture as possible in here. Um, We've got a three-piece sofa suite and um, coffee table, which is designed by Guy Rogers in 1966. It's even got the stamp, 1966 stamp on it, which is really nice. Um, We've got the teak ladder axe behind us here, which is by Staples, who are based in Middlesex, and they're, they're still about. Actually, they're over in Middlesex still.
0: There was a word you used in that sentence I didn't understand. Ladder,
2: racks. Ladder racks. So it's um, I guess it's the f- freestanding wall storage. So they're, I mean, normally you have the kind of metal legs and frame, but this is really nice. It's all solid teak. So you've got so this slatted. Is a really, really nice one. It's kind of. Yes. Yeah, slatted, slatted
0: teak bars. Slatted there.
2: teak legs, and then you clip on. You clip in metal rods, and on top of that, you, it's kind of modular. So you, desi- you decide how how it looks, really. So we've put in the, we've got little we've got units with sliding doors. You've got the drawers. You've got drop-down desk, and you can desi- decide where these go. And kind of you buy the pieces and slot it together. How wow, you that
0: wish. sounds very 60s very cutting nice. edge.
2: Yeah, it is very nice. In fact. I'd quite like this for my house after this project's done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Are you given uh, an enormous budget with which to furnish this place?
2: Um, it definitely wasn't enormous. I mean, it was. we had to be quite clever, really, with where we found the stuff from. So, you know, we went to, got to auction sites and um, antique markets and car boot sales. And you can obviously still find... I mean, people have kept on to this kind of stuff for years and you can, you can be lucky and find some really amazing things. Um, but
0: this is where your expertise really comes into its own because you've got to know what you're yeah, looking you at under, under those circumstances. And you know
2: um, where stuff's from as well. I mean, the the difficulty with it with this, it's you know, it was working. It was been a working class family that lived here, so you've you've got to kind of do a balance of getting things that look nice and that will people will be wild when they come and see it. But also, you've got to remember that this wasn't you know, designer. It wasn't. It really wasn't designers or people with a lot of money that would have lived here so I've got a real good mix here I think of what a kind of you know traditional East End family might have how they might have lived
0: Um, I was struck by something uh, and you often see it in films so let's say you've got a film set in 1960 And there's cars driving around in the film, and all the cars are from 1960. And of course, when you look at a photograph from that time, actually most of the cars are from about 1940, Mm -hmm. and uh, very few of them are are modern. So, have you tried to incorporate older stuff as would have happened?
2: Yeah, I mean, as I said, it's a working-class family that lived here, and they wouldn't have moved here and bought absolutely everything new. They they couldn't afford to have done that. So, we've got a lot of stuff from the 50s in here as well. So we've got an old TV. Old lamp shades um old sewing machine it's kind of stuff that people would have collected over the years um they've got g plan nesting tables, which probably would have been made perhaps early sixties they certainly wouldn't have been late sixties um and the same throughout the rest of the flat the the dining table and chairs in the kitchen, and possibly late fifties early sixties so not not everything is is from nineteen sixty eight I and mean, people it would you know people you couldn't afford to. Buy everything new, so it'd been stuff that had been accumulated over the years.
0: You're, I guess, putting your twist on things as well to some degree. I can see the yeah. degree of historical accuracy. Yeah. How much uh, license do you allow yourself?
2: Um, a little bit. I've kind of played. A, I've got a story in my head. I guess. um I've got over in the corner there. We've got a um, tulip table and chairs. You know, the white, typical 60 style style dining table and chairs. And the family that lived here may, probably wouldn't have been able to afford that. So I've played it in my head that it's a, it's a second, it's, it's second hand. She got it cheap because it was a display model, and it should really have four chairs, but I've only got three. So that was the deal. She got it cheap because <laughs> she got it cheap because the full set's not there. But I, I think you know, the flat, I was, I felt like it needed items like this to really um, give the impression of the 60s and add that, add that wow as well mm-hmm. for, the, for the visitors.
0: We are standing on an enormous sheepskin effect rug, which takes up most of the floor. And I wondered, given the interior design and decoration, touches, where we can see touches added by Goldfinger himself?
2: Yeah, I mean, this rug isn't from the 60s. I mean, every other rug... What? I know, I know. Every other rug in the flat is from the 60s, but this one isn't. It's three and a half metres by two and a half metres wide. And I think one of the things we struggled with was where... Different flooring had been laid down over the years and then ripped up. A lot of the tiles are damaged, they've got paint splashed all over them. And we've done our best to clean them up, but in some cases, it was impossible. And then to find a rug which kind of was big enough to cover it, and it's really hard to find nice 60s big rugs. I mean, you get they're a lot of them in, in
0: terrible shape by now. Yeah,
2: well, they're either in really bad shape or loads of them. There's loads of them over in America and Germany, but they go for eight thousand nine thousand pounds. Some of them, the kind of Panton era era style rugs and that's that would have been the whole budget blown on a rug so that wasn't that wasn't a possibility so I think this is pretty good I mean it well it looks 60s isn't it it's nice and shaggy and I think we've, we've done our best with elements like that.
0: No, I, I can see that either you've had an eye for the authenticating details here. We see, for example, a pipe, a tobacco pipe, uh, resting on top of what I'm sure is a period newspaper. Yeah. Or you've just been doing no work at all and entertaining yourselves because there is a game called Careers, which <laughs> seems to be mid play at the moment. I, I don't know really uh, what you and your colleagues are up to. But should we move out of the lounge and see what else we can see?
2: Go into
0: the kitchen. The kitchen, yeah. I see what you mean about the flooring by the way that's really taken a yeah. uh, taken yeah, a beating. I
2: mean, it really has taken a beating and especially obviously in the in the bathroom and toilet as you can see here it's it's non-existent so we're having I mean we've we've got a um a uh, someone coming in later to lay down some linoleum uh, which is we've got a, like a nice grey fleck lino going in the bathroom and and toilet which is It looks very 60s, it's certainly of the year. And then out on the stairs and in the lobby, where they're really, really, really damaged on the stairs, we've got uh, lino tiles coming, which are as close a match to the colour of the tiles as we could get, rather than, you know, sticking down something which wouldn't have been... We're trying to replicate it um, as best we can, really.
0: Given what we've said about the... (laughs) I'm going to say, and it's probably controversial, with kind of social decline of the buildings of this sort. Mm-hmm. Joe and I were talking a little bit about the idea of ghettoisation, yeah. essentially. Was there much in the way of domestic pride within the uh, individual flats as far as you can ascertain? Were people taking care of their homes?
2: Uh, do you mean the people who were probably last in here before I came in?
0: Well, I, I suppose if you, you if you can see the general state of it, do you, do you detect that uh, people have looked after it, or um, it, have people I'm, seen it as temporary? Do you think, or
2: I mean, it's it's hard to say, really. I'm sure when obviously when people first moved in, they took a hell of a lot of pride. They they would have they would have loved living here because, as I said, it was utopian. They you know they would have had you know a kitchen a kitchen you know that worked and a and a separate toilet and bathroom and. Their own enter at their own entrance, and you know, it was a nice maisonette. But I think over the years, it, it probably it hasn't been looked after as it as it should and could have been. Um, you know, it would be it's unfair to say that the people who lived here last, you know, di- was were disrespectful with it or let it. Let it get into a bad state, but it, it, what it was. But I have to say, it wasn't in the best of states when we were when we came in. It was it was pretty dirty. There was um, quite a bit of mold in in the bedrooms as well.
0: Oh, in the bedrooms.
2: In the bedrooms, yeah, in the kids' bedrooms as well, which was a, wasn't wasn't the best. And the kitchen where the cooker had been, it looked like it hadn't been cleaned for ten years. <laughs> I'm not yeah I'm not exaggerating with that one the decorator was actually he I came to see how they were doing one day and um they'd been under the sink because there was a blockage in the pipe so they'd been trying to sort it out and he said he unblocked it and the stuff that came out he this is you know uh, a 50-year-old uh old bloke quite hardy and he said he was right he ran to the toilet and was just retching over the toilet so it, it wasn't in the best of states when we when we um when we got hold of it but that's not to say they didn't enjoy living here. I mean, there was. <laughs> no, but no, 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 no. no. But the thing is, I was in um, I was in one of the kids' bedrooms taking pictures when I first came round, and one of the kids had written a really, a really sweet little message on the wall in pen, just on. Oh, the I
0: thought one. you were going to say P- no, no, use a no, no. finger in the mould.
2: No, they hadn't. They'd written a nice little w- a message on the wall, and it said it said Bye bye, Barrowford Tower. I'll miss you. And that was, it. Was really sad. I thought it was really, really lovely. I took a picture of it. Um, so they obviously liked living here and it was it was home to them so have you had
0: much interaction both of you with the other residents have they been curious what's going on in this particular apartment
2: um i don't know how many original residents still i think i know there's one guy but we've not uh, there's one there's definitely one man who's lived here from the very start i mean i've not been i've not spoken to him or been introduced to him so i'm not sure which flat he lives in but he's obviously been here for how many years is it what we in Forty-six years, and he must—he must have loved it if he's if he's still here. Um, I've spoken to, you know, residents who are more who've not lived here as long, and they absolutely love it as well. So, I mean, and I'd love to live here. This would be my—I well, I love Brutalist architecture, so I'd absolutely love to live here. And the views are just incredible. The views you get over London are probably they're probably the best views of London I've seen, especially at night or just as it's going dark. It's just. You just want to stand and look out the window for, for hours.
0: Joe, given that Tilly has decorated the place and uh, invested a lot of time and, and care into the is there any chance of just handing it over to you? <laughs>
1: I wish we could I wish we could um alas, the building is uh due to well not alas it's it's a very good thing that the building is due to be completely refurbished uh, in the coming couple of years uh, so in fact, most of the residents at the moment um, are artists and they have art studios here oh, provided that's,
0: that's always the precursor to renovation
1: <laughs> I'm afraid it is um but it's it's a good thing really uh, and as I say lots of artists here at the moment um, because of the Bow Arts Trust and a brilliant partnership between the Bo Arts Trust uh, and Poplar Harker which has allowed artists to move in, use the spaces um, and in some cases open their spaces as well uh, which I think has been a really good thing I think that's, that's since 2008 so it's seen the building um, certainly become a more creative place uh, over the last few years
0: hmm. Perhaps it's a good moment to talk about the National Trust's involvement as well and I know that in a, in any city, and with, with the wealth of city properties, uh, it must be pretty fierce competition for some sort of special attention. What is it about this place that set it above all the other contenders, I wonder?
1: well perhaps it was it was always a logical first foray uh into brutalism for the national trust because of our connection with number two willow road so of course there was that wonderful Goldfinger connection um and uh and we we found ourselves thinking if we were to open somewhere um where would it be well of course balfron and trellick were very high on the list um I mean, actually, the inception of the of the project, it came out of a conference, uh, an Iconic Houses conference, um, about uh, a year ago now, um, which was exploring 20th-century housing, and it was exploring um, 20th-century houses which are open to the public. So it was a, a day, really, looking at some of the most famous houses um, around the world which are open to the public. Uh, what gradually became clear, though, was that there was no example anywhere in among all of those wonderful houses of social housing and the challenge came out really at the end of the conference that you know if anyone was going to do it well it would have to be the national trust and a sense of people really lending their support that that they would lend help if we could find a way of making it happen uh so we we came away from that conference and we thought well let's see if we can uh now in an ideal world, of course, we'd be able to take over this flat forever in perpetuity, like we do with lots of our places. Um, we don't have that opportunity, um, and nor would we want to take away this house. You know, uh, as, as social housing, that's the, you know that's what it um, what it has been, uh, and and that's important. But we did have the opportunity granted to us by Poplar Harker and uh, and the Bow Arts Trust to open this place for a period of two weeks to recreate it. You know, to, to be in this space and uh, and to have uh, Tilly and the Hemingways come in and, uh, and do the extraordinary work that they've done and we leapt at the opportunity, of course, we had to uh, and we think it's a very exciting project
0: well, that's, uh, At odds I suppose with the permanence of the ideals behind the structure and the longevity of the structure itself, just a, a couple of weeks and then uh, all of this is whisked away and we know exactly where some of that furniture is going to end up, don't we Tilly? Oh
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I might have to Well, that, to be honest, we've, we've lent quite a lot of our personal collection as well and we also we we co-own a, a museum down in Shropshire, so a lot of a lot of the kind of the smaller items, like all the old food packaging and stuff in the bathroom, and the magazines and news, newspapers that you talked about, um, and the games, um, they all come from that museum, so they all, oh. all go back there. Um, so
0: this is a really happy relationship uh, is, in, yeah. in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah, and then also a lot of the stuff that we've purchased. We will be auctioning off as well, so people that look around can can bid on bid on most of the items that are here as well.
0: Very good. We've got just a couple of minutes left. Unfortunately, we could spend a lot longer. But what I would really love, just in the closing moments, is to uh, see what makes this a Goldfinger-designed, Goldfinger-designed dwelling.
2: Let's see.
0: <laughs> I'm being led into the really quite spacious kitchen, which has been decked out in uh, d- definitely mad men era kitchen equipment
2: um i think there's as joe's already mentioned i think it's all the small details like you know absolutely beautifully designed taps and the the integrated kitchen with the really nice handles and then you've also got the, the light switches as well outside all the doors they're they're all um they're all beautiful i mean not all of them were here when we when we when we got hold of the flat but we've managed to to you can nip into other flats in the building which are empty and and pinch their light switches so we could get the original ones in um what
0: what makes is uh, looking at them uh, now of course they look like the sort of thing to my eye that's due to be replaced but what is it that makes them uh, exciting for you
2: i don't know I th- they're just so simple and clean looking and they're they feel solid as well they're not you know they're not pvc everything nowadays is is pvc pvc in it you know this feels like it's built to last and it it obviously it has lasted and i feel like a lot of things that are built nowadays don't feel like they're going to last that long and don't feel like they'll be in as as a good nick as this is in 50 years time
0: I do remember in Willow Road there was uh, a use of wood and metal which seemed somehow surprising although I couldn't quite put my finger on what was so unusual about it but it did seem as though the principles that were being applied there, those big windows as well, have been uh, translated to this entirely different property really quite easily.
1: I think that's absolutely right. Um, Goldfinger was probably obsessive about materials. We, we know from, uh, from Willow Road that you know, he was sort of obsessively designing things like door handles all of the time because he wanted it to feel like it was the perfect grip on your hand, you know, so that it, it didn't jar in any way. And, and as I say, he was, he was obsessed with the use of different materials with both uh, contemporary materials, but also those materials that had stood the test of time. And so you do get these wonderful uses of, of you know, materials like wood and metal, but, you know, set against uh, the contrast of of what would at that point have been quite quite exciting use of concrete as well.
0: Which brings me, I I didn't know we were going to squeeze this in, but concrete death you mentioned on the way up. What on earth is concrete death? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, concrete death, I'm afraid, is, um, is much discussed by architects. And I, I'm not sure that even architects uh, are quite sure exactly what it is. But it is the process that concrete goes through as it ages. And in certain places, concrete can crack, uh, and then it can also become very waterlogged. And that is what is commonly referred to as concrete death.
0: So it's, uh, that, that's why the engineers are checking to see whether the building's shifting around and falling apart.
1: That's right. Thankfully, it seems uh, safe at the moment.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm 27 floors up and I can't wait to be on the ground uh, So <laughs> <laughs> without further ado, uh, we should uh, say actually the place is open for two weeks What sort of chance have people got
1: of getting in here? Um, they have still got a chance, so tickets are still available um, They are £12 a pop um, and we're open from Wednesday to Sunday from the 1st of October until the 12th of October
0: so you'll need to get your skates on But it's well worth a visit If only for the view uh, But also for the uh, excellent recreation Of the 60s environment And for this fleeting opportunity To see Goldfinger's work From the inside Tilly Hemingway, Joe Watson Thanks very much for today Thank you
2: Thank you
0: And that's all for this week My thanks for this week To Tilly Hemingway and Joe Watson Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf.